This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to a two-hour New Year's special edition of Panel Borders, the monthly radio show about comics, graphic novels, and sequential art. I'm Alex Fitch, and in today's program, you'll hear three conversations with comic book creators who are using comics and sequential art as a teaching mechanism. Later in the program, I'm talking to cartoonist Brick about his graphic novel, The Curious Case of Leonardo's Bicycle, an epic 200-page tome looking at the controversy around the discovery of a drawing by Leonardo da Vinci of a prototype bicycle in the 1970s. Brick investigates the circumstances of the find, whether the drawing may or may not be genuine, and the Leonardo industry with vested interests from academia and publishing. You'll also hear a panel discussion hosted by L. Whitcroft, recorded at the Graphic Brighton Academic Festival, which takes place every year in Brighton and mixes academics and cartoonists to talk about their work. L. is talking to Ottilie Hainsworth, and four of the creators, she's taught at the Phoenix Centre in Brighton on a course called Graphic Novels Real Life Stories. And here she's joined by Charlotte Semlian, Tanya Suri Bandara, Judith Biddleston, and Nick Kanan. Charlotte, Tanya, and Judith worked with Ottilie on a collection of short stories based on the Theatre Royal Brighton, and Nick's talking about a graphic novel in process about living on a houseboat, and the history of the many people who previously inhabited it. However, to start off with, in another Q&A recorded at Graphic Brighton, I'm talking to the comics laureate Hannah Berry, who has held the post since 2019 and will continue to do so until April. Hannah is a successful graphic novelist with the titles Adam Tyne, Britain and Brew Lightly, and Livestock under her belt. And here is talking about her role as the Comics Laureate, which recently has culminated in a survey of comic creators across the UK and a series of online discussions looking at the results of this survey. The last Comics Laureate was Charlie Adlard, the, uh, the Walking Dead fella, um, very famous. And the, the, the Laureate before him was Dave Gibbons, uh, Watchman, also very famous. And I think for their third one, they wanted to have A, a woman, <laughs> and B, somebody who was uh, perhaps a bit younger. Also, I think most importantly, somebody who was slightly less famous, because I think um, a lot of their laureate duties, when they were sent off to, to talk about things, to, to give speeches and to, to discuss future terms, I think future... No, that sounds like a hostage negotiation. When they were sent <laughs> off to, um, to speak on, on official subjects, they were quite often said, you know, you know, literacy, literacy, but tell us about Watchmen. What's, the, what's Alan Moore like to work, work with? That, that kind of thing. So I think they wanted somebody who could be talking about literacy in, with uh, using comics. Um, and people would say, and your other work, the, something about a tea bag, I think, was it? So it wouldn't get in the way. And that's, that's very much uh, um, why I'm here today, I think. Um, but I got, uh, I was asked if I wanted to do it last year. The post, it has two, two key prongs, two key prongs. Um, and one of, so one of them is to be uh, a comics ambassador, um, to, to go out and try and promote comics to new readers and try and convert them to our ways, um, <laughs> which uh, is, is quite exciting. Something that I'm 
fairly used to, I think, because my work is more in a, um, I guess it's in the literary area, and a lot of, I, I, I rub shoulder a lot of literary people who say, oh, that's nice comics. What are, what are they then? Um, so I'm used to having to explain myself and, and try not to sound, um, you know, try to sound like, like, like comics are, try to convince people that comics are worthwhile, worth their while, worth everyone's while. Um, and the other prong is to try to, um, to, to, to get comics to be used as a, as a tool to aid with literacy. Because comics are such a powerful literacy tool. As I, think, I mean, I think everyone's already, everyone's already aware of this. But they're, they're such a... Um, because of the marriage of image and text, they're a very warm and very inviting um, environment, I suppose, for, for reading. And the text is quite... It's, it's much less overwhelming than it would be on a, on a, in a, on a prose page. Um, so for, for new readers, it's, it's a lot more accessible. Um, so for, for children especially, especially at the moment where uh, the, the enjoyment of reading is being slowly wrung out in place of um, phonics. <laughs> I, I don't even know... I, Sorry. Um, You'll find out over the next few years as your kid. Yes, I will. It's the right age. <laughs> there you go, child. <laughs> Learn for me. <laughs> and report back to your mum. So it's... it's uh, and it, they're also... They're very... Um, they're not only are they important tool for literacy, but they're very useful for, for, uh, for learning as a general... Um, as a, well, as a general tool for learning. I think yeah, there yeah. was a study by Sheffield Hallam University, uh, <laughs> which... Um, Proved that we show, well, not proved, but there was it was an initial study which showed that uh, using image, using comics, uh, comics format to to, um, to deliver information was much more effective than using using just prose, just straight text alone, because the uh, the the way that that we um, absorb information is is much more um, uh, is with, with the with the visual side, it's much more. Um, I can interrupt if you want. Oh, please do. So. Um, <laughs> Paul Alexio at uh, Sheffield Hallam was doing experiments using eye tracking software and he uh, got a piece of kind of like academic text about a subject that the students probably wouldn't know about, something kind of science-y, um, presented it as a block of text, presented it as a traditional comic and then presented it as a comic where the images had nothing to do with the text. So it might be um, like a tea bag with a speech balloon because no one ever has those, uh, you know, <laughs> talking about um, DNA. And then Alan analysed their eye movements and then asked them to give a report afterwards about what they'd gained in 30 seconds or whatever. And it was the traditional comic was the way of absorbing the most information most quickly. Then it was normal text and then it was the non-traditional comic. Oh, really? Because people were so confused about talking tea bags <laughs> that they, they, they were kind of like absorbed by the images and didn't take in the information. Oh. So, uh, but yes, yeah, so traditional comics are, according to uh, the people at Sheffield Hallam, a yeah. good way of absorbing information. Brilliant, thank you. If I could, for, for future um, laureate talks, if I could just bring you with me. Sure, to, uh, yeah. Or perhaps me. read the studies myself. That would be a, a, a more professional way of doing this. Um, so the, that's the the, uh, the other prong of, of the laureate's post is to is to use comics to help with literacy. And with my with my post in particular, I wanted to explore two prongs off that prong. Um, this is a weird looking fork, but if, you know, if you indulge me. Um, so first of all, I, I used to work in the uh, I used to work for the probation service actually, just a few doors down that way. Um, <laughs> Any and, clients? I'm, I'm not allowed to. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, I recognise. <laughs> um, 
But uh, I was really shocked at, how, at the, the level of, uh, like the low level of literacy in, in the prison population. I think the, the average reading age is something like eight in, in the prison population. It is it is shocking, and it, I, I'm pretty sure that is what is um, is, how, is is keeping a lot of people back and keeping them. You know, the recidivism rate is, is I imagine that. Uh, a large part of that is due to, to people just not feeling like they're part of society because you can't you can't join in society if you can't if you can't read and write. It's such an enormous barrier. So I wanted to try and use comics in a way which would um, uh, which would help with with um, reading programs in prisons and with with offenders generally, um, which is a little tricky because there's not much money. Uh, in, in prisons um, for prisoners because they're not uh, popular vote winners so you know, see what we can do with that one <laughs> um, and the other mini prong was um, to help with, uh, learning, with people learning English as a foreign language with both children and adults but I think children are probably the easiest to, to, to reach initially I would imagine um, and uh, the reason for that is that my, so my mum is um, she's Ecuadorian and she went to school in, in the States and she, she came to school there without knowing any... Not, I don't think she knew any, any... Any English or very, very basic English. And she was very quickly left behind and isolated and, and you know, quite quickly withdrawn. And um, she eventually she started to... I mean, she was learning English slowly, but the way that the language really sunk in for her was when she was sitting with her dad reading, reading comics together. Mm. Um, again, because the... the I mean, the imagery provides such a... The, the, the context is already on the page, and so you, you can just... You can kind of fill in the blanks. And I think we, as humans, we sort of... That's how we, that's how we work. We take the key bits of information work out the rest for, our, for ourselves. Um, there's probably a study on that, a few... Uh, Alex I, don't, I don't know that. about that one. Probably, yeah. <laughs> there's a big study. Uh, I, won't talk into, I won't talk about it now. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's, that's my... Uh, those are my plans of attack, if you like. Um... Uh, so I was sort of wondering with with um, well sorry if you wanted to, I'll I'll take maybe at the end if um, if anybody wants to 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 discuss some ideas or some, throw out some questions about um, or suggestions of of uh, different ways to take this different ways to set forth because as I say we're still in the early planning stages um, and I'm very much tugging on a lot of sleeves and asking people for for help money. Um, <laughs> You're not given a, an official laureate budget for uh, travelling um, around the country. In a there, there is one. Black there's a limit. budget for me to travel around the country. There's not mm. a budget for um, uh, make, getting things done so much. Mm. I think there's like a, there's a limited budget. If I don't, maybe if I don't go to this city, then they can put out a photocopied paper or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> but I mean, when you were um, asked by the Lakes Festival to be the laureate, did they, you know, give you any kind of list? of the kind of things they were expecting? Or did they say, because it's still a relatively new post, you can kind of make it up as you go along? Well, they, they quite like it to be shaped by each laureate. So they said, this is, these are the areas that we'd like you to, um, to investigate. They didn't use the word investigate. These are the areas that, that, we, that the laureate post traditionally covers. But anyway, you'd like to take it from there. Mm. Um, it's very much up to you. And I, I've, in um, the last few years with trying to, uh, trying to promote my own work um I've, i think i've gotten to be if not good at um asking people for favors and begging and blagging um at least persistent so mm. that's something that i'm hoping that i can um that's a tool i'm hoping i can use because you in the past you have taught as a tutor at the avon 
uh, foundation. Yes, Was yeah. that one of the reasons they asked you, because they knew that you had educational experience? Um, I don't think they... No, I don't think they did. I think okay. it's not really... I know that it's, it, the, the post is about promoting comics in education, but I don't think it's specifically... Going out and giving talks about... Yeah, okay. I don't think so. Because the, the thing as well is that I've not really... Um, I've, I've done a few workshops with children, and it, it's not that the, the post is based specifically for children, but it's you know there's there's a um, there's definitely a, a clear link between the laureate post and and schools. Um, my, I mean, I've I've done some uh, I've done a few workshops. I did the first workshop I ever did with children was by accident, <laughs> um, and I think the kids knew it, which is unfortunate. Went through the wrong door in the school. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Oh no. And it was a one-way door, and I couldn't go back. It was very awkward. Um, what sort of ages? Uh, of, well, the workshop of, of kids that you've been doing and intensity oh, workshops. Oh, so um, it's it's all so far. It's all been uh, I think um, secondary school age. Okay. Um, so slightly older children, um, and it's been the, the the workshops that I've done. They've all been about um, telling their own stories in in comics format. So not so much. Um, not, not so much using comics as a tool, but you know enjo- the enjoyment of comics themselves. Mm. Um, because I. I you, know, I want to, you want to get them while they're young. <laughs> <laughs> That's not too creepy. And what's the... I mean, you know, obviously when you're going into school and doing a workshop, you hope that there is some kind of basic understanding of what comics are. Would you say that that still yes. exists? Yeah, I think okay, it does, good. yeah. I mean, that's been my experience, that there's, there's um, kids are much more... Uh, they're much more... They, they find it a lot more easy to a lot easier to understand the comic format than adults do because I've I've um, done a few uh, especially with Arvon actually it, it seems to be that with um, with the Arvon course there's quite a broad range of people uh, sorry Arvon is, is um, there's uh, their residential writing courses um, a week long at a, t- a week at a time and um, the the comics courses that I've done there they tend to be um, people of all ages but there's there's definitely a group of people who are older who have retired who enjoy writing don't necessarily know much about comics but would like mm. to to get involved and um it's, it, i can see it's a lot it's a lot harder for them to um to, to use the comics format to sort of get their head around it because they've because they've, they've grown up having to separate having such a clear distinction between the text and the image that when it comes to it it's, it's quite hard to marry them again but i think mm. with with children because they grow up reading um like picture books and and hopefully grow up reading comics as well. It's it's so much they're, they're so much closer in their in their mind. I think children perhaps think more visually as well. Mm. Um, I have no studies to base that on. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. Obviously, it's been you know thirty years uh, or less um, since I was last at school. But I got the feeling that the longer you are at school, the less they encourage you to draw as part of the kind of. Uh, to use a term I loathe, meaning-making process. Um, you know, because, I mean, it starts to happen again, actually, perhaps, you know, when you're uh, in your 20s, when you're making notes and lectures, you might doodle as well yeah. to kind of uh, help jog your memory in terms of a memento mori. No, that's not the word I mean either. No. <laughs> mnemonic trigger, unless someone died, you know, during the lecture. That was in a ter- serious lecture. In terms of a, a mnemonic trigger. But um, that kind of disconnect between writing things down as a way of, gaining and sharing knowledge and drawing things seems to be separated as you progress through the school system that it's really encouraged when you're young and the older you get it's almost like you do art and art classes and yeah. you don't do it anywhere else yeah absolutely and I think as you get older as well but you get more um, self-conscious of the of what mm. you're doing as as, a, as an artist I mean because it's um I mean kids will draw kids are so happy to draw and then that that kind of 
I'm not sure what age it is exactly. I'll let you know when, when my daughter grows up. But you know, there's a, there's <laughs> come back here in five yeah, years' time. <laughs> yeah, um, there's, an age, there's definitely an age when when you become a lot more self-conscious about it. And you know, there's then at that point there's the kids that draw good and the kids that don't draw good, and the kids that don't draw good just then sort of stop mm. drawing. And it's kind of phased out. Um, and I think a part of it as well, which is really interesting, that I hadn't considered. Um, when, when the laureate post, when I was announced um, as the next laureate, I had a lot of emails from teachers, which was really, really um, exciting, actually. Oh, that's great. Um, mostly asking if I could come and speak at their schools, which uh, if is not really not entirely feasible with a tiny child, but you know, hmm. um, but there's ways and means. Hmm. But anyway, so there were a lot of people who got in touch, and um, a, a few I had a, I had having a few a few conversations with uh, with different teachers, and one in particular said that the reason why the why um, teachers are so hesitant to use comics in in classrooms is because they themselves are not, they don't have the confidence anymore in the hmm. visual side of things. So either either drawing or, or understanding the, the like their, their own visual literacy. Mm. Is um, I think it's something that if you don't use it, you lose it. You, you kind of need to to um, you know reignite that or to, to keep it going. Otherwise, <clears throat> otherwise you, I mean, yeah, you, you, it it sounds very much like their um, their confidence has, has gone in it, and so they, they you know it's, it's not it's not being as used in or they're shying away from it where they, where it could mm. be a much more useful tool. Mm. Um, from my very small sample of <laughs> emails that I've had. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, obviously you're an experienced graphic novelist. You've done three graphic novels. You've done various cartoons over the years. But in a way, it's kind of ironic that they asked you to be Comics Laureate just after you wrote an article about how it's not <laughs> yeah. economically feasible to be a graphic novelist. Yeah, that's my last graphic novel so long, everyone. Yeah, do comics, Which, but don't expect to yeah. be able to Yeah, live I, should say, I should say, I, I, the, the article was, I'm not doing graphic novels anymore. So a lot of people have assumed I'm not doing comics anymore. Some people seem to assume that I'm dying or something. <laughs> I mean, people are very, um, were very, very uh, surprised to see me, you know, back again and, you know, among the living. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's simply because graphic novels themselves at the, this current framework that we have it is not it's not feasible to be able to to um to do them especially in the way that i do them as well because i'm I, i'm aware i make a rub my own back they're very elaborate mm. um but this is something that i was hoping to uh, achieve with the with the laureate post i'm hoping that there's um you'll get job offers i'm, I'm hoping that my <laughs> staff, i just want job offers for me really <laughs> This has got to lead to something for me. Um, I was hoping that there would be... Uh, so in, in the article, I, um, I mentioned that there's no... Um, and you can find it if anybody's interested. I think you can find it through a link on my website. Um, there's a... Which is coming up in less than 12 seconds. <laughs> which will be on your screen shortly. Um, but it, the, uh, the, the amount of arts funding that there is for various, er, various areas of, of the arts world compared to, to funding of comics is, um, is incredible. I mean, the, the, the amount of money that goes into opera, which is a very... I'm sure opera's lovely. I'm sure it's great. People that love it, they love it. But it's a very, very elite uh, area of art, I think it's fair to say. Mm. Um, it's not accessible to all, whereas comics are, are incredibly accessible and have, have so little funding. So I'm wondering... I'm, uh, I'm hoping to um, explore ways that we can that we can get money into funding comics. I mean, there, it is possible to apply for... for, um, for uh, grants. grants, thank you. <laughs> to apply for grants individually, as individual creators. But there must be, there must be a way to, to fund 
bigger comics bodies and larger groups in the way that you know the Royal Opera House is funded. There must be yeah. some way of getting that, that sweet government money. Well, I mean, but also in terms of promoting whether it's uh, a local institution or a, a local research facility, you do see these examples around the country where, say, a science museum or uh, Ottilie is going to be talking this afternoon about how the Theatre Royal Brighton, you know, encouraged her and her students to do an anthology about that. So I guess it's just finding the right place who think yeah. that comics is a viable medium and say, brilliant, you should let us get involved with you and we can create some sort of comic, you know, to either promote your brand, you know, uh, or your product. Yeah. I mean, there's also this website, um, Positive Negatives, where yeah. they curate uh, comics about... Um, Issues, uh, so uh, you know, sort of minorities and people who need uh, to be greater. Uh, yeah, people whose voices need sort to of be heard. Yeah, yeah need to be and they're, they're very good at, uh, at um, using people who's like from from uh, marginalised backgrounds themselves. So it's not you know a group of um, uh, straight white men who are who are <laughs> telling the stories of refugees trying to, mm. to cross the, the Mediterranean, for example. Um, and I, sorry, I completely... Yeah, no, well, no, like, well, no, I mean, that's the point. Of the or like, you know, um, uh, Carrie Franzman's comic. Um, yeah, over I've got, under Sideways Down? I was going to have a stab at it, but that sounds good. Uh, um, she's not, which she's was, not here, is she? Not yet. No. Uh, which is funded by the Red Cross. So again, it's an organisation that was happy to get a comics creator in yeah. to um, depict someone's story on the page that maybe then brings it to a new audience. Yeah, and, and perhaps this is, this is a way to, to make it happen. It's not to go straight for the gatekeeper, gatekeepers themselves, but to, um, uh, to try to just make them more and more visible and, and, and um, uh, just... What's the word I'm looking for? Communicatable? No, more, um, more everywhere. OK. I'm, I'm, as I say, I'm just off maternity leave. It's, <laughs> my brain I haven't is had enough coffee this morning, so we're both... <laughs> Battling for vocabulary. <laughs> um, just to make them more uh, omniscient, Omni- omnipresent, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, make them go. more omnipresent so that, they, that people are just aware that, aware that they are around and they are um, viable and valuable and, and, and become more um, familiar with them, I suppose. Mm. And then that's, that's the point at which we can you know, bust down the doors of the uh, Arts Council and uh, say, give us, give us cash. Yeah. Um, Although the, outco- the Arts Council is quite good, actually, at funding. They're good, yeah, they're, good. they're very good at individual funds. I'm just wondering if there must be a, a way of getting, you know, yeah. money for for, 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 for uh, symposiums like this, for example. Indeed. Wouldn't you like some good Arts Council money? I would like some good Arts Council <laughs> money. Um, you spoke about the, uh, the literary side um, of your comics. And indeed, uh, you're a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> um, could you talk a little about that? Um, yeah, I uh, don't really know how that... I mean, so... Um, I th- I think what happened was the, <laughs> the uh, Royal Society for Literature wanted to... Um, so they, they, have a, they had a... Um, uh, a scheme. Well, they, they, they invite so many fe- uh, new people to become fellows each year, and they realise I think the average age is something like I don't know, 86 or something. You know, very, very old. Not that old, but quite old. And they wanted to have uh, some younger uh, writers from different areas, and so they had this 40 under 40 uh, scheme where they were trying to, ca- to, to get hold of um, 40 people who were under 40 uh, who were from different areas of, of writing all across the board. And um, 
and they had uh, so yeah so they had some I'm not sure how they found out about me um, <laughs> I think I'm not I'm not entirely sure but the thing is that do I feel like I deserve it no but I'm there and I've got it and I'm going to use that title because it's very grand I'm now Hannah Berry FRSL I'm going to stick that on some business cards as soon as I get some more made Frazzle Frazzle Hannah Berry <laughs> Frazzle um <laughs> If you will, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna make the most of it because it's it's you know it's, it sounds very good, and if I can use that again to sort of you know creep in through some more some more doors and you know bring comics to, to more mm. interesting places, then I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna make the most of that. But do you get the impression? I don't get a, I don't get a crown though. That's the only oh. disappointing. Um, a fascinator like <laughs> Sarah <a> fascinator. <laughs> Um Do you get the impression though that on their part it was actually an interest in graphic novels as part of literature that they wanted to embrace graphic novels. Yes, yeah, I mean, because they, they're, um, they're, they're, they're very much trying to look at the evolving uh, world of literature, and, and so they, they had um, some multidisciplinary artists who are working in, in who, who are um, who are writers, no, wait, do I mean multi, multidisciplinary? No, I don't mean that. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were trying to, uh, they were trying, I think they They've just realised, not just realised, that sounds very patronising, I think they were aware that they're, um, uh, they were slowly representing a very, quite a, quite a, uh, a dusty area of literature, which was um, uh, less and less part of, um, like, liter- the literacy, lit- um, general culture of literature, I would say. And so I think there was a, there was a move to try to make it more relevant to, to more readers of different, of different things, different areas. Um, I think it's a definitely. A, it feels like a much more like a concerted effort. Okay. Um, and in terms of your practice, did you feel? I mean, the story comes first in a way, and so you see yourself within the field of literature. Um. At I least when you're doing graphic novels rather than cartoon yeah, strips. Yeah, I don't really know. I feel like a an interloper in the field of literature. <laughs> um, uh. Yeah, I don't. I've never really. I still see myself as a comics person, and, and I see that comics is a part of, of the world of literature. But I don't really feel like I. Um, I don't really feel grand enough to be part of that. Having having blagged my way drunkenly through a couple of uh, parties where very literary with literary people, proper literary people, um, and made a bit of a tit of myself. I think I'm. I'm not quite at that stage yet. Okay. Oh, no, it, feel, it feels like a, it feels like a um, uh, quite a separate and distinct world, um, hmm. where it sh- perhaps it, it shouldn't be. I shouldn't feel like that. I'm just. I think that's just my um, failing. Okay. Um, today and tomorrow. I mean, a lot of the talks are about using comics to communicate ideas about all sorts of uh, mediums, uh, whether it's um, architecture, uh, philosophy, theatre. Um, in, in terms of the workshops that you're doing, are they generally just getting kids into using the medium of comics, or will some of them be, for example, helping kids learn maths using <laughs> comics or anything like that? Well, as you know, I'm very good at maths. So. <laughs> um, no, I, I was... Uh, uh, I think part of the um, the joy of comics is that they can be used for anything, for, for any area. But I think uh, where they would be especially good... Having spoken to um, 
to the to some friends who are teachers actually who are who are english teachers um there's there's definitely uh there'd definitely be a good a, a, an important use for, for for comics with teaching the um uh what am i trying to say like getting across the 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 the, the like the, the the specific meaning of words like the i can't think of the word that i'm after again um but yeah, I mean, so there's, there's anyway, there's, there's mm. yeah, using them in, in every different area of, of school, they can they can make the the subject so much more accessible and so much more um, easily retainable, mm. rather than just learning things, you know, lists by by rote or um, being uh, I suppose being talked at. There's something there's something um, there's something about comics which which helps you to learn to understand things on your own terms. You read them individually by yourself at your own pace and your own speed and you digest them by yourself mm. and uh, I think I, I'm, I'm, I think the, the idea is to use them for, for any mm. subject really I mean possibly starting with English and moving outwards okay. I mean within your own practice obviously you've probably done a bit of research from time to time when you're making comics for example your most recent graphic novel um, <laughs> the one with the clones in it uh, livestock. Livestock. <laughs> uh, you know, it's kind of like a satire about um, social media and celebrity. Mm. So presumably you drilled down a bit into what was going on, you know, at the time being. So do you find, as a practitioner, for example, actually on screen now, there's uh, a comic you did for an anthology about war poetry. Yeah. Do you find whatever subject you're approaching, whether you're writing the script yourself or you're illustrating someone else's, you're also learning about a new subject? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, the one that's on the screen at the moment, which I'll probably have to switch back to in a moment, the... Uh... From, oh, to pause oh Alex, it. Oh, no. no. There we go. <laughs> yeah, this one. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, this, is, uh, this is a poem called The Question. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a poet by any means. And I, I'm, not, um, uh, I, I'm not as... I don't have as great an understanding of poetry as I would like to. Um, but I was asked to illustrate a couple of poems for this, for this uh, anthology. Um, the, what was it called? The, Above the where, Dreamless Above Dead. Above the Dreamless Dead, that's the one, yeah. Um, and it involved... Um, Trying to like understand the, the the poem, really reading the poem, trying to understand it, and then trying to put a, a visual context behind it. So adding an extra layer of story where the uh, which which the poem was, which didn't interfere with the poem, which didn't undermine it, which sort of married with it. Um, it was a really interesting project actually, because obviously the poems are supposed to be they're supposed to stand by themselves. So they don't they don't need artwork. So I mean, I was really entirely superfluous to this, but it was. It was an interesting... Um... Or not, though, in terms of finding a new audience. Maybe people who had never read war poetry before well, might yeah. go into their comic shop and see this anthology illustrated by people they know and then read it for the first time. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, and actually, the, the, on the next slide... Where's the... Sorry. Um, this was uh, from the, uh, the, the recent book from 404 Inc., uh, We Shall Fight Until We Win, which is about uh, various political, female political figures throughout... Um, uh, the last the last century, um, and I, I hadn't heard of Jabin Desai, and I, I hadn't I didn't know anything about him. So there was this is the first time I've really had to, to get across a lot of um, factual information in in a comic format, and it it, uh, it was it was a really it was a fun experiment, hmm. but because um, most of the most of what I do has been letting the visuals lead, so it was interesting to, to take a step back and let the let the text sort of do the speaking mm. you know what I mean 
And are you occasionally surprised when other people... And the next one is a fart joke, if anybody's... uh, Nice. I was getting too high. Um, (laughs) uh, When other people look at your work, are you sometimes surprised when they've kind of read something into it that you weren't necessarily intending? For example, I'm thinking... uh, This afternoon, I should know the programme. At 12.15, we've got a a panel discussion about architecture in comics. And um, the two artists who are coming to talk on that panel... Uh, were in an exhibition called Sequential City, which was all about comics and architecture at an architecture practice in Shad Thames a few years ago, and you were in that exhibition. Um, Presumably they approached you and said, we'd like to include your work because we like the way that you've rendered architecture on the the page. Uh, Yes, yeah. I mean, I hadn't... I'd never really um, thought of that as, 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 uh, as an interesting thing, but yeah, it was, it was really exciting to be included with that. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that, to that talk yeah. later. Well, when, I mean, when I, at the time, uh, when I spoke to Owen about the exhibition, Owen Pomery, he said that, uh, you know, for example, your work in the exhibition was uh, a good way of... Um, I can't remember what the image was. Um, but it was a good way of depicting architecture on the page that, you know, aided people's understanding. Oh, and so nice you had kind of an architect's... <laughs> Thanks, Owen. ...an architect's eye, even if you didn't really realise it yourself. Oh. But maybe that's just part of the manner of making comics, that whatever you're depicting on... Yeah, page, you have to really research it. You have to, uh, to get into the mind of an architect. You've got to, you've got to know what's, what's good. Because I, mean, I think people know if you're blagging it. <laughs> um, but taking a step back, you, you, I mean, you, um, when you mentioned reading it, people reading things into comics, um, that's one of, the, one of my favourite things about comics, is that, you can, is that they're so open to interpretation. Obviously, we're talking about comics used as teaching tools where they need to be um, you know, quite... quite quite thoroughly understood mm. but I, I, there's something to be said as well for, for open-ended comics which um, I mean that, I think that's, that's educational as well to, uh, to use comics for, for metaphor and for, for um, to, uh, to portray some quite complex ideas in, in, um, in simple terms which, which you can sort of which sort of spark um, I don't know your own, your own thought process, mm. processes processes mm. I went off on a bit of a ramble there but um so we've got about 15 minutes for questions does anyone in the audience have any questions they'd like to ask hannah yeah um, so you've mentioned lack of funding and lack of ability to get sort of ways and means of making money around the around the side um so there's i mean i mentioned the arts council they do do they do uh give individual grants for creators if you have um if you're putting together a project or a book or a comic or a, or, or something which is um which needs a, like a, like a finite project which needs a, a pot of cash um you can apply to them and uh but they, the thing is that they, they really look for audience engagement, audience part, uh, not participation, audience um, generation. So they really want to be able to see that this this, com- this thing you're creating, this comic, this project, this book, will reach as many people as possible. So that's um, it involves quite a lot of um, uh, sort of putting, um, getting a lot of contacts to, to, to of, you know, way or making lots of plans of ways that you will promote it when it's when it's complete. But that. They they do give individual grants and they're they're very good. Um, I got one after after four attempts, fourth time lucky. Um, so it's not the easiest thing, but it's it's possible. And um, 
the uh, if your if your work is um, where's where's Sarah Kenny? Sarah Kenny? Yeah. Um, the the Welcome Trust. They uh, the 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 are here. Yeah, <laughs> are here. They've got all the money, <laughs> but they they uh, they fund. Um, they will provide funding for projects which are. Uh, am I right? I think they have a, like a medical or a science um, connection. Things which are connected to the to uh, the Wellcome Trust's um, own particular interests. And I think the uh, heritage, national heritage, is it? Um, there are there are different pots of cash that you can apply to individually. Um, it's a shame that there's not anything. There's, well, there's very few things specifically for for comics. There's there's a few competitions. So there's the Myriad First Fictions um, competition. Uh, if you're working on a graphic novel, then you you um, uh, you submit your project to that, and I would recommend you all do. <laughs> um, but also, I mean, you know, if you don't mind being a part of kind of industrialised uh, genre comics. Yeah. You've written a couple of scripts for Rebellion for 2018. Yeah, but these are quite specials. hard jobs to get, though. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, they're... they're I, th- I mentioned gatekeepers earlier. They're, I think there's, I feel like there's a lot more gatekeepers in, in these areas. I mean, I'm, maybe, maybe I'm talking out of turn. I think it's, perhaps, it's, um, perhaps it's easier than I'm saying it is. But, but, I mean, I guess if you're prepared to not make money from comics for a few years, yeah. you can self-publish stuff. And then if you're getting good feedback, get that under the nose of editors and say, yeah. look, I am able to make comics rather than just saying I've never made them. Yeah. You know, here is something I've created. Will you give me a job? And that might get you a gig at Rebellion, yeah. at Myriad, yeah, um, I mean, you know, I th- or another publisher. Yeah, I think um, the best way to look at it with, with comics is that because it's such a tight-knit group, I think when you, when you, do, when you do a project, when, whatever you create, it's not, you shouldn't value it by what you get paid for it because that's... In all likelihood, going to be pennies, but it will. It's it's like a stepping a stepping stone to, to bigger things. You can use that to open more doors, to show to more people, to, to get your name out there more. Um, and I, I, it's taken me a while to, to sort of get into thinking that way, but it's it's. I think it's the only real. Um, financial profit is very hard to come by, but I, I think if you can use if you can look at your work as a kind of an investment, and it's it's really hard because obviously. You shouldn't. You shouldn't work for free. You shouldn't have to work for free. But um, especially when you're starting out, it's sort of a, an unfortunate necessity. Yeah. So yeah. Sorry. Um, I mean, just on that, that point of making money from your art, um, you know, I think it's surely it's the same with any kind of creative arts. I mean, all these kind of artists who leave in art schools and so on. Mm. You know, the idea of getting the gallery and then you get. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, I think I think there's a squeeze all across the board with with the arts world. I mean, I, I'm not um, I've not been. I mean, I've I've only graduated from here. To, oh, actually, no, 20 years ago. That's a while. Um, but I, I feel like the, the, the landscape of, of the whole arts world has changed. That it used to be much more feasible that you could make a living in art, in, in any art form, and now it's, it's um, uh, much, much harder to come by. Um, well, I interviewed a guy the other day, um, Chris Reynolds, who does Mauritania comics, and after having drawn comics for 35 years it looks like there is interest in doing a TV series on one of his comics. But the thing is, do you persevere with it for 35 years, self-publishing? <laughs> Occasionally, every 15 years, someone like Penguin brings out an edition of your book. Yeah. And then there isn't anything for another 15 years. Yeah. If you love the medium, then yes. Because, I mean, his day job is a care worker, and he said, well, I can do this to earn money, and I can do this to express myself. Yeah, I mean, you, you really, this is the thing with comics, is you really have to love it. And I think it does show in the, in the comics which are out there. I mean, everyone is doing these things because they, because they really enjoy them. No one, I mean, well, not no one, that's a bit of a stretch. But I think few, far fewer people are doing it as like a part of a daily grind, part of their slog, because you, you have to do it because it's, because it's uh, you know, it's part of who you are. It's part of your, 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 your need to create um, but yeah, no, I, I, I take your point that, that um, but I, th- I feel like we should we should feel like we're entitled to to something for creating. I, I think maybe we've perhaps we've just become too um, too I don't know too embroiled in this kind of um, late stage capitalist environment where we, we feel like we, we should be providing you know it, it should be a um, everything is quantifiable but I think I think art is is the value of art is much greater than than we are being told it is and I think that we should feel we should feel proud of what we do and we should feel like we have a greater value than than we are given by society <laughs> and um yeah I mean it would be it's interesting to 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 try I'm I'm, I'm going to try to pursue that I'm, I'm now that I've got all these grand titles I'm going to try <laughs> to um every email that I've that I've sent has been uh I sound very grand in my emails now, where I'd never Had did a before. Very comic laureate frazzle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Currently eating frazzles, um, and it, it's 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 great to have been given this. I mean, from the from the Society of um, the, not the, sorry, the uh, Royal, Lit- Royal Society of Literature and and um, the uh, and Lancaster and the University of Lancaster to be to be given these titles. It's nice to to be trusted in this way. Um, little daunting, little daunting, but that's fine. Um, but I, I feel like it's it's a responsibility now to try to use this to, um, to 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 push comics past a few gatekeepers, which are still sort of very much, you know, squeezing what artwork is what art is considered acceptable. Um, if anybody has any ideas of ways I can use my titles, then uh, come and come and see me. I'm happy to um, beg. <laughs> apparently, <laughs> not proud. Thank you, Hannah Berry. For more info about Hannah Berry's work, please go to hannahberry.co.uk. That's H-A-N-N-A-H-B-E-R-R-Y.co.uk. And for more info about the UK Comics Creator Survey, which she organised in her role as the Comics Laureate 2019-2021, click on the tab marked UK Comics Creator Survey.
In April, the next Comics Laureate takes over from Hannah, and the 2021 to 2023 holder of the role is retailer Stephen L. Holland, who runs the award-winning and much-loved comic shop Page 45 in Nottingham. For more info about Graphic Brighton, where my Q&A with Hannah was recorded, please go to graphicbrighton.wordpress.co.uk. And hopefully, with an end in sight to COVID-19 and the various lockdowns, There'll be a couple of Graphic Brighton events later in the year, so keep an eye on the blog for more info about those and previous Graphic Brighton events and podcasts. Next, I'm talking to cartoonist Brick about his graphic novel The Curious Case of Leonardo's Bicycle. Brick has worked on a number of comics over the years, including the anthology To End All Wars, the graphic novel Depresso, and shorter titles such as East of Aleppo, Albert's Angst, and various mini-comics. The Curious Case of Leonardo's Bicycle looks at the apparent discovery in the 1970s of a sketch of a prototype bicycle by Leonardo da Vinci. Brick investigates the veracity of this drawing and the vested interests behind the various people who might want the public to believe that it's real, regardless of its actual provenance. So you've been working on this book, uh, according to the notes on the dust cover, for around 40 years. Does that include, does that date start from when you started thinking about it and doing the research? Because I guess you really only started drawing it over the last decade. Okay, I've not really been working on it for 40 years. Uh, essentially, the, um, the bug hit me about 40 years ago. Um, but maybe the last 15 years I've been um, originally toying with drawing it and then drawing it up. The reason that it went from being something that I wrote occasional articles about, um, I became the kind of go-to man on this particular art fraud. Um, So I was writing articles for periodicals basically all over the world Mm. Um, but I suddenly realized that a lot of the evidence was visual this is about a drawing so it kind of followed that a lot of things had to be seen to be believed and um, it was also fairly obvious that any attempt to Um, write a prose book and then simply have illustrations was going to be way too expensive simply because of the reproduction rights. Mm. But the great thing about um, copyright law in this country is that as soon as you take an image um, that is copyrighted and you put it within the context of something else on the page. So it could be like um, a famous Turner painting uh, that you then draw your own frame round and put it on a page with cartoon or illustrations of people looking at it, then the copyright no longer exists because it becomes a quote rather than an actual lift. Um, So... I suppose about a decade ago, it did dawn on me that the only way that this story could be properly told 
was in fact using the comic book format of text and image. Um, that also kind of coincided with a number of um, prose books being written about quite specific topics such as salt, for example, or amber was another one. So these are very nerdy books, um, but there clearly was a market for them. So it struck me that um, given the breadth of the topic, in that it ranges from obviously bicycles and the invention of the bicycle, right through to terrorism, um, environmental disaster, etc., etc., that um, you know this was a subject that people could get lost in. Um, and there was a lot of material in there that was historically factual, historically true, but many people wouldn't be aware of. Um, the most obvious one being the Tambora explosion, which, you know, essentially was the biggest um, eruption, the biggest uh, blowout uh, human beings have ever, ever experienced. I mean, it, it, it was the size of Krakatoa and Pompeii combined plus. So, um, yeah, so it seems that the answer was to just crack on and do it. And with all my work, I have a tendency to just do it and then see if I can interest the publisher in it. There's so much research involved in this book. I guess that took as much time as some of the drawing. Um, actually, the research, because it's not a concerted thing. It's not something where I started 40 years ago and I've been solidly researching it in that length of time. I mean, you, you do it in dribs and drabs. Um, so you get curious about something such as um, why would this... Uh, controversy spring up in Italy. Um, okay, it's about Leonardo da Vinci, but what is it about Leonardo da Vinci and why would they want him to have been the inventor of the bicycle? So um, you follow that, you follow that thread, and it takes you into all kinds of different uh, alleyways, motorways, um, rough ground, whatever. Um, and then you pick up on something else. So um, the thing in that particular context was, uh, wait a minute, if you look at Leonardo exhibitions around the world, there's this flaming bicycle in all these exhibitions. Why is it there? So then you go off on another tangential um exploration to find out the reason for that and that maybe swings you back round to looking at well is it actually true that someone like da vinci is the great genius uh, the world believes mm. or is that a bit of uh, marketing hype um and so on and so on and so on so you you just in the course of your working life and trying to feed your family and all that sort of stuff you just have an excursion that maybe lasts for only a week in which you 
thoroughly take apart a particular aspect of it and you fill up a, a folder or a, um, a springboard, what are they called? Um, I'm just looking up there now. Pinboard? You know, those, those huge clip files. Mm. You just fill it with notes until you start to get a shape and you start to think, hmm, well, actually, maybe there's drama here. Maybe there's something that is absorbing for a reader. It was absorbing for me. Why wouldn't it be absorbing for other people? Mm. Um, in terms of the drawing, um, yeah, it did take a long time. And, of course, I did a lot of things wrong and uh, had to change whole pages, um, sometimes whole chapters, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, but the big challenge with the drawing of it was more to do with the approach. How was I going to take people through this convoluted detective story? Um, once you've nailed that, then the rest of it is relatively plain sailing. Yeah. This graphic novel seems like an ideal project for you, though, as it combines many interests that you have, um, cycling, a look at capitalism, uh, the drama of all of the protagonists, and all those sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's true. It is a project that hits a lot of buttons in me. Um, the biggest question is, does it hit buttons in other people? And I kind of felt that it probably did uh, because of the breadth of it. Um, I knew it would be a nightmare to market, but certainly from the reactions I've had from readers and critics, it does seem as if that kind of eclectic breadth uh, is something that they enjoy. There's also the other side of it is that I don't just, uh, I haven't just produced a documentary. There are elements of it where I've gone into uh, what you might call docudrama. So, for instance, the, the story of uh, The Years Without a Summer, which is the products of Tambora, um, the big explosion, uh, the big volcanic eruption. Um, my question was to myself, how, I go, how am I going to get people to believe that this is true? Mm. Um, it's one thing saying uh, the reason that we're not aware of it is because, for example, the, um, the wireless, the telegraph, hadn't been invented at that stage, and so it didn't become big news around the world. But at the same time, uh, we also know, those of us who are aware of Tambor, we know the dramatic effect it had on agriculture um, and living quadrupeds uh, in Europe, in Canada, in Britain. We know from looking at um, the, uh, the paintings of Turner, the dramatic effect it had on the sky and how that affected his art and how that changed art um, throughout history, etc. Um, so it seemed to me that there were certain points in the story where I could step away from being a narrator and become involved in 
an actual little story mm. set within those grim, grim times when uh, there was no sun for like two years. Um, and there are other episodes in the book where I slip into other genres. Um, and it seemed that uh, I could do that. You know, it, it wasn't uh, a big problem for readers. Readers will instantly shift from one to the other. They don't necessarily need a consistency. I think it was more of a problem for publishers um, who tend to be quite uh, narrow in their view of what a graphic novel or graphic nonfiction could be. Mm. I'm surprised to hear that you've had trouble finding a publisher because you describe the Leonardo uh, the Leonardo da Vinci industry in the book as having so many products and so many publications that I would have thought you'd have had many publishers after it. Uh, <laughs> um, yes, I thought I'd have publishers after it. But, you know, as I've said elsewhere, I had these 14 responses from publishers, both at home and overseas. Well, that in itself is an achievement. I mean, they didn't just um blanket or uh, send me a quick email i mean I, I was getting letters from publishers that were saying this is brilliant this is wonderful but i'm really sorry i just can't work out where we can place it within our catalog um in terms of the uh, leonardo industry um given that i kind of fairly uh <laughs> obviously and boldly slated um no I, I don't think that they'd have gone for it um i have an endorsement on the uh book from uh let me just get the book i have an endorsement on the back from professor martin kemp now professor martin kemp is the leonardo um expert in the world i mean we're not just talking in britain or in europe in the world mm. and um i sent him a copy of it and um i sent it to him largely because he is depicted as a very small person as a short person or even a dwarf <laughs> and i thought i could have problems with that but i did explain that the reason I depicted him like that is because he is a giant in his field, whereas all the other normal-sized people who feature in the thing in the book are very dodgy characters. Um, there's a lot of mendacity going on here. And he came back and said that he absolutely loved the book. And then I pressed him further and said, well, is there any chance of you endorsing it? Um, you know, Martin Kemp has never, ever endorsed anybody else's work at all, um, either within the Leonardo field or any other field. So the fact that he was prepared to give me an endorsement uh, for a comic book, of all things, <laughs> I, I thought was wonderful. Mm. Um, but broadly... Um, I did have help from publishers. I had help from uh, most notably Five Leaves in Nottingham, who are local publishers, who did a lot of work on it, and also from um, 
Corinne Perlman from um, uh, Myriad, mm. um, who was uh, very, very generous, and her staff, who were very generous in their comments and in helping me um, get a view of it and all the rest of it. And they, you know, to be fair, both these people wanted to publish it, but also had this problem of didn't seem to fit. Mm. The graphic novel seems like a very apt book for our times with the whole Trumpian fake news phenomenon. People claiming facts are real and fake news isn't and nobody really knowing the truth about anything that's going on. Particularly when you have these vested interests of people who want to promote things that clearly aren't true as being true in order to promote their own interests. Yeah, but of course, uh, that's true. It is, um, you know, it, it has got a whole kind of uh, agenda about um, spoofing things, faking things, etc., etc. But uh, of course, at the time when I was doing it, uh, Trump wasn't even on the horizon. I mean, you know, don't get me started on Trump, for God's sake. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, if anything, it was the Obama period. So... Yeah. Obviously, with all of the historical incidents that you include and all of the research into Leonardo's bicycle, it's quite a weighty tome. But did you think that it would be over 200 pages when you first started on the project? Um, I once wrote a book about a journey I made across America 150 years after the California gold rush, mm. starting from Washington DC and ending up at Coloma, which is where the gold was found. And I learned in writing, it's a prose book um, and it's an adventure travel book. Um, and I learned from that that um, I had an editor on it who found that he couldn't edit anything out. <laughs> And uh, my learning process was that everything that goes into a book needs to be relevant. You can't really afford um, flotsam and jetsam floating around the place. And um, on that basis, I started and I finished without thinking how long the book was going to be. Mm. Um, and I think it's a... Um, I think it's a good lesson for authors that provided everything in there is appropriate to the core subject, then it should be there. Um, and with comics, the great thing about comics is waffle is hard work. Uh, just doing a page of um, comic illustration it's hard work, so you don't want anything extraneous, anything that is unnecessary. Just stick with the bare essentials. And um, I think I achieved it with the Leonardo book. There is actually one frame, um, which is a full-width frame, where I simply had come to the bottom of the page, but it wasn't the bottom of the page, and what am I <laughs> going to put there type of thing. Uh, but otherwise, I think it's all relevant. Mm. So, yeah, you start at the beginning, you get to the end, and if it's over 200 pages, so be it. 
I suppose it depends on what story you're going to tell in each of your works, as between your last graphic novel, Depresso, and this, you did a number of short comics, I guess each of which were a better suited medium for telling a shorter story. Um, that's true. I uh, Between um, Depresso and this one, uh, the Leonardo book, I did a number of zines. Um, the lesson I learned from the zines is that the zine scene uh, is a young scene and to have a grey-haired old man sat at the table trying to flog his comics wasn't going to work. Um, it was one of those sort of prejudice things where one look at the guy and you think, well, he can't have anything interesting to say. Um, they have sold, and they've sold steadily. Um, and they're on, you know, various crazy subjects that, or crazy narratives that kind of t tickled my fancy at the time. Uh, but what you've got to remember, Alex, is in the middle between Depresso and Leonardo, there was um, uh, the war to end all wars, mm. which actually you covered. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. yeah. And do you think anthologies like that also help you as a creator in terms of it being another way of expressing ideas? Um, yeah, I mean, um, short stories are a challenge. Um, if you can write a good short story, then I think you're a notch above a long-form author. Um, I certainly like short stories, but then you've got to remember that my origins are as a political spot cartoonist, in other words, the political cartoon of the day, so to speak, and uh, edutainment. Um, I did a lot of work for charities um, and for causes and around issues. And that generally meant that I had to get ideas across and narrative drama and structure and all the rest of it across in maybe under six pages. Um, and that's a, a very good uh, discipline to learn. Um, you know, brevity is everything, really. Hans-Jörg Gerst says um, on the back page of the graphic novel that Leonardo's bicycle can also be digested as chapters with the reader taking breaks in between. So in that sense, it also works as a collection of short comics as chapters in a narrative. Yes, that's right. I mean, um, I had all this wealth of material and I knew I was going to be using different uh, genres within the full breadth of the book. So the question was, how was I going to break this um, and work this whole massive subject for a readership and keep them interested? Uh, one of the things that um, had kind of come down to me was that um, somebody who had read, I can't remember whether it was Depresso or To End All Wars or, you know, others, had said, oh, I read a chapter before I went to sleep. And I think a lot of people might be doing that. So the idea of saying, okay, focus on, firstly, 
the content of that chapter and make that self-contained and then make sure that the chapter that follows has a logic that follows on from the previous chapter or chapters. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was specifically designed to be consumed chapter by chapter. And if you wanted to go off and have a holiday in between, you weren't going to uh, lose the thread, if you like. Um, and I think that was just um, a product of the nature of just how broad this subject had become. You describe this book as a monograph on the front cover of the graphic novel, and I think it stands up very well against purely academic works. But I wonder if your recent role um, at Nottingham University has changed the way that you write these days. Uh, um, Yeah, the Nottingham University thing is an odd one. Um, So they made me an uh, associate professor um and i have to say i was really tickled pink about that i mean um you don't you don't get a lot of recognition when you're sat in your front room doing whatever you do and it goes out and it goes away from you um so it was nice to be told that uh you know you were something but having said that I've not done any teaching at Nottingham University. Uh, They've not called on me at all. So all this honorary professorships business is really just about feathers and caps. There's, you know, I think it's a shame uh, because I think that somewhere like Nottingham, the English department ought to be teaching comics. But no, I haven't done any. Well, perhaps this book might open doors in academia for you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's a nice thought that the book might open doors in academia. But uh, firstly, I don't have a huge amount of respect for academia. (laughs) I mean, it is, even today, very much ivory towers, um, uh, very insular, the departments, the people who work there are they're very well paid, they're very comfortable, um, they're actually incredibly, um, what would you call it, stick in the mark, reactionary, whatever. Um, and of course, post pandemic, uh, who knows what the state of academia is going to be? Um, it doesn't look good at present. Yeah, I suppose since you depict corruption in the academic world in the book, um, then perhaps you might have also uh, burnt some bridges in that world. Yeah, I mean, um, there are a lot of vested interests in uh, academia, the broad expanse of academia. You know, people, um, they they have their niche. Um you know, one of the things that I came across when I became made uh, was made an honorary associate professor is that it was really difficult to get two departments to talk to each other. Mm. So you've got this campus that is full of some of the most brilliant minds in the country, but they're not talking to each other. It's very much, you know, this is my castle, this is my turf, um, you go off and do your thing over there. Um, 
And in fact, one of my um, one of my zines was based on that. And the idea was, I don't know if you know what a stylite is. A stylite is someone who, um, like uh, Simeon in the desert, uh, is someone who um, usually in the Christian world goes and climbs on top of a plinth and sits there for 40 years contemplating their navel <laughs> and becomes a kind of saint. Um, so I had this idea of a, a woman who was an isolationist, essentially, who uh, went and climbed on top of a sculpture that exists in the uh, University of Nottingham campus. And while she's there, she's making a protest um, it doesn't matter what the process is about, but she's making a process. But while she's there, she's writing on uh, stick-it notes and throwing them down to the students or the people passing. Um, and uh, the idea being that, you know, she's trying to get departments talking to each other in order to create something big, important, meaningful around the subject of a protest. So, mm, yeah, not sure about academia at all. And, yeah, it's full of corruption, inevitably. I get the impression, though, that you enjoyed the process of doing research in the making of this book, and it really shows that different disciplines can be combined on the comic book page. Um, I think the fact that I'm self-taught that I've not been to a college to learn how to be a cartoonist, and I am very much a cartoonist, I'm not really an illustrator, um, means that in order to survive, you, uh, in order to put you know, bread on the table, you do have to be skilled at, in lots of different areas. And if you're a political cartoonist, and I should explain that there's a difference between an editorial cartoonist, which is someone like Steve Bell on The Guardian, and a political cartoonist, which is someone like me, who basically draws cartoons about issues that um, rile them, um, excite them, annoy them, whatever, um, and then tries to sell them, so to speak, uh, around specific issues. Uh, you tend to, when you get commissioned, you tend to get commissioned uh, around uh, subjects and issues that are very complex. Uh, and uh, the editor or the writer is looking for somebody who has a brain that is capable of digging through all this wordage to get to the core of what it is that this issue is all about, and then to produce a cartoon that within four seconds, sums it up for the reader. Um, so a book like the Leonardo book was um, almost a continuation of my uh, bread and butter work. Um, but I do love um, exploring things and getting to the bottom of them. And, you know, the pandemic, for example, is a classic. You know, there is so much that's gone on um, in the last year or so that really needs exposing and really needs, you know, blowing up so as that people realise just 
how dreadful our leaders are. Um, but you only get to that by digging away to find out, you know, who or what is at the bottom of all this. So, yeah, I love that process. Can we expect a COVID investigation comic from you? You're not going to get a COVID investigation off me. What I tend to do is to uh, do um, basically uh, political cartoons about specific things as the um, the COVID pandemic rumbles on. And the same with Brexit. I mean, you know, it's... Um, those two issues are a, a political cartoonist uh, daydream, wet dream, whatever. The characters involved are, well, we all know that they're a bunch of workers. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, but they are. And I suppose, too, to wrap up, going back and looking at the process of making this book, which bits of information and parts of history that you researched in the writing were most surprising to you in finishing the graphic novel? The the bits in the process of researching the book that um, sort of shocked me was firstly to do with the great Leonardo. I mean, I love Leonardo's drawings and most of those drawings you'll find in his notebooks. Uh, his notebooks are just remarkable they're amazing um but it shocked me that uh, essentially for hundreds of years nobody thought uh, that leonardo was much more than a, a jobbing engineer or artist or whatever it's not until the beginning of the 20th century that this whole cult of leonardo grew up and that surprised me um, I wasn't aware that he had basically slipped from history within about 50 years of the end of his life. Um, it then surprised me uh, how the art industry exploits Leonardo and exploits us as visitors to galleries. Um, you know, I suppose I shouldn't have been surprised, but I kind of was Um the whole Tambora story, that, um, that just uh, blew me away. I mean, I knew nothing, absolutely nothing about Tambora. And I suspect uh, most of the civilized world knew nothing about it. Mm. Uh, I would love to know um, how much, uh, how, how the issue of Tambora was handled in the, um, in the Far East. Uh, that would be fascinating. Uh, but all the way along, the uh, the story of terrorism, homegrown terrorism in Italy, mm. that was fascinating. I mean, this is spaghetti terrorism. It's mm. <laughs> it's it's a wonderful story. Um, I mean, it's vicious, it's bloodthirsty, it's nasty, it's pathetic, all those adjectives. Um, but you know, I was somebody who lived through. 68, um, you know, May 68 and everything that followed from it. But I knew nothing about uh, the homegrown terrorism going on in Italy. And, you know, I think there are probably lots of other... Oh, I didn't know anything about Carl Dreys. I mean, mm. Carl Dreys 
what a man. Um, and he's, I think the reason we don't know anything about him is because the Germans don't particularly like him. Mm. So that in itself is a revealing story. Um, and that's all to do with democracy. So um, these things just kept rolling like um, like waves onto a beach. They kept rolling into my office, and I'm going, whoa, how many people know about this? <laughs> um, so it was. There was an awful lot of really exciting and interesting and surprising research going on. To order copies of The Curious Case of Leonardo's Bicycle, please go to Brick's website, brickbats.co.uk. That's B-R-I-C-K-B-A-T-S dot co.uk and click on books. On the same page, you can find more info about his graphic novel Depresso, his anthology To End All Wars, and shorter comics East of Aleppo and Albert's Ninth, which alongside a variety of other titles are available from brickbats.co.uk stroke bookshop. To close this New Year's special of Panel Borders, you're going to hear a panel discussion with a bunch of creators who have worked on an anthology title looking at the history of the Theatre Royal in Brighton. Every year, comics creator Ottilie Hainsworth runs a course called Graphic Novels Real Life Stories at the Phoenix Arts Centre in Brighton with students on the course encouraged to either work on their own projects or collaborate on a joint initiative. In this panel discussion, which is hosted by L. Whitcroft, creators Charlotte Semlian, Tanya Suribandara, Judith Biddleston and Nick Kanan are talking about their work, with Charlotte, Tanya and Judith all contributing to the Theatre Royal Anthology and Nick talking about his graphic novel in progress, about the houseboat which he lives on, and the history of his predecessors who inhabited it. Ottilie will be talking about curating the project and working with the students in this discussion recorded at 2019's Graphic Brighton, an annual festival of cartoonists and academics, which takes place at the University of Brighton and other venues around the city. Our project at the Theatre Royal that we're going to talk about today came about through the course that I teach at Phoenix Brighton, which is called Graphic Novels, Real Life Stories. Um, And I started Graphic Novels, Real Life Stories a couple of years ago because I've been working on a diary, a graphic diary, for several years. And I was so inspired by that sort of process that I wanted to share some of the things that I've learned through it. Um, And... So I I wanted to get to work with people, maybe some people who haven't done very much drawing for a long time and explore the way that you can use drawing and writing to to deal with issues in your life and using your, get people to use their imagination again. And I think the course, what the course does is it gives permission to the adults to create and play. And so so anyway, so I'm going to go through this, some slides. The first slide is, is a, a graphic collection that I made with a class, another class called Tidelines. And what we did was um, we wrote, um, we found things on the beach and we, each person took an object from which they'd found on the beach and created a story around it. Um, so, so one person found a green shoe and 
made up a story about what had happened to it before and what might happen to it afterwards, what happened to it when it was in the sea, where it might end up. So that was the way that that project was sort of sparked, and we ended up with a whole collection of short stories to do with different objects found on the beach. Um, so, um, let's see. So this is some more stuff. These are some more images from the course. This is a, an exhibition that we we put on at the Phoenix of of sketchbooks from the from the course. Um, so what inspired the Theatre Royal project? Was one of the things that inspired it was that I worked on writing the graphic novel in which I um, had to explore the life of the horticulture, 19th century horticulturist um, Henry Phillips. And Henry Phillips built an anthem in Brighton, he, he, um, in, in the Palmyra Square, the largest steam heated anthem in the world, I think it was at the time. Unfortunately, it didn't last very long. It fell down after two days. So <laughs> it was sad to But what, what it taught me was that I had to find out, I tried to try and research the character of Henry Phillips. And in fact, really, there weren't any images of him. So I had to kind of invent quite a bit of it. So it's where imagination meets sort of fact, really was the bit that I found really interesting, and I still find interesting, about exploring a historical subject in graphic novels. Um, and the other great thing about it is that the, the process of putting a, put, using a historical subject in a graphic novel is that you've got a structure of events that have already happened to base what you want your story to be about, to base your story on, which just gives it a bit more of an edge somehow than just start using complete imagination. Um, and the other thing that I had to learn about was collaboration, and that's something that we do quite a lot of in my class. For instance, the image that's up at the moment is a game that we played, which is called What Happened Next, where the whole group, each person takes a piece of paper and draws the next thing that happens, and you end up with a crazy story where anything can happen, so it's this sort of twisting, winding plot. Um, Anyway, when, I'm just trying to get to the right slide here. So that's another one. And this is some sort of influences that people have had. So we've got Brighton Graphic Novel. We've got um, another a collection, Brighton's Graphic War, which was another book with young people um, produced by Queen's Park Books. Um, Red Rosa and Dull Margaret, which somebody else in the group found very inspiring, and Mouse as well. Um, so... Um, when I, when, one of the things that we do in the group is to have visits and class trips to different locations. So I was searching around for somewhere where we could go. So we went, we, I called up um, Jackie Alexander, who's actually sitting at the back of the room, and asked her whether we could come, come to the theatre. Jackie was very enthusiastic about the idea, and she offered to take us on a tour backstage. Um, so... And her post she was very positive about the idea of us doing graphic novels, and she said, oh, yes, you can do a graphic novel about the Theatre Royal. So the pressure was on quite a bit. <laughs> so it set us up for the feeling that we were going to do something quite special here. Um, so we went to the Theatre Royal. And when we were at the theatre, Jackie took us to all the little hidden nooks and crannies down in the bit, down in the deep, in the, under the stairs and under the stage... And she told us all about some of the different characters which, had, which were connected with the theatre. So there was the grey lady who was a ghost who haunts the theatre 
probably the ghost of Mrs. Nye Chart, who managed the theatre um, for a time in 1867. Um, and if you look at this slide here, one of the far on the far left, you can see the seat where the grey lady sits. So that already got us interested. Um, other characters were Lillian of the Gulp Bar. So there's a tiny little sort of hole-in-the-wall bar at the theatre, and somebody worked with Lillian as a character and created her as this incredibly mean, grumpy woman character. Uh, Marlena Dietrich, who went to the theatre, performed at the theatre in 1966, was another character that came out. And even our imaginations were going, so we were thinking about the humble ice cream seller, all the different characters connected to it. And one of the stories which Jackie told us was about the workhouse annual Christmas visit to the theatre, which was the highlight of their year. Um, and this really inspired some people in the group, and one in particular, Beggar, who's here in front row, um, ran with that story. And it somehow became a bit of a central thread running throughout all of our stories, along with a pantomime of Aladdin, which we decided, okay, well, let, let's see if we can have a few things which are going to connect the story somehow. Um, and some other, another thing that came out was we decided to have various thematic objects which are scattered throughout the book. So if you, if you want to have a look at the book afterwards, you'll see that there is, there's a ruby ring which appears throughout it and various other things. Um, and in our talking and working out what was going to be the boundaries of our project, it sort of became that the theatre was a bit of a sort of timeless zone so that the stories could take place in any time. And so that, that allowed us to choose characters from any period of time. It was almost like a sort of a TARDIS, a sort of wonderland where anything could really happen, which is, which is a bit what the theatre is anyway, actually. Um, so when we went to the theatre, we took lots and lots of photographs and did some drawing and gathered research on the building and the steep steps to under the stage and the inner workings of the theatre. We found the, the setting really inspiring and that became a big part of people's stories, people incorporated in their stories. So the process that we went through with, the, with our project was pre-preparation. First I asked people to investigate characters and people connected with the theatre and identify one who they found really interesting or they could somehow relate to. Um, Oh, this is the gulp bar. This little hole in the wall is the gulp bar where people would go for their drink between, like, going on stage. They'd run off and grab a drink. Um, <laughs> so, um, so each person chose a real or imagined character for their story. So we're, we're sort of entering, we're using history, but we're also using your imagination. And then they, would, then they collaborated. So we got together around a table and everybody had to have conversations with each other's character and see how their stories might have interconnected with each other. Um, and then they had to start to write and draw. And they, the rule was they had to incorporate at least one other person's character in their story. And finally, we, they finished it. They finished their stories and we self-published them. And we printed secret stories from the Theatre Royal. So, and, and Jackie allowed us to have a wonderful launch party at the theatre, which was a bit of a highlight, actually. And we had a fabulous launch party, and it hailed outside. And it definitely, we had a psychic who came to the launch party who made a big impression on everyone. 
and it definitely felt as if the spirit of the grey lady was hovering mm -hmm. over everything. <laughs> okay, so I'm just going to tell you a little bit about this, the images that are on screen now, which is the, the story that was chosen by Catherine, who's in front of her, which was she chose to tell the story of the grey lady or a part of her story. And Catherine says that she was very inspired by Jackie mentioning the Grey Lady, who roamed the theatre and intrigued and wanted to find more about her, out about her. And Catherine found it a very fascinating space in the theatre, but also very claustrophobic below stage. And she actually sort of had a weird dizzy spell and had to leave, leave the theatre at that point. And that her best bit of the project was sitting around the table in class the week after the trip, and all putting their ideas about their characters, realising that we were all so into the project, and it was a great, great the way it took off, and have such a vibrant group of people to work alongside. So, Charlotte Semlian. First, I'm just going to read um, something from Bago, who, who wrote the story, wrote and drew the story that's on the screen now. Um, so Bago, who's also here on the front row, um, said, when we were shown around the Theatre Royal, I was fascinated by all the charming anecdotes Jackie told us. I imagined all the stories that had happened in the theatre that no one knew about. I wanted to find a possible real character and construct an adventure for it. Looking for some historical fact, I came across the letter the workhouse guardians had sent Mrs Nychart thanking them for inviting the inmates to the pantomime. I struck gold. I imagined a girl from the workhouse going to the Theatre Royal for the first time and being dazzled by the chandeliers, the soft carpet, the velvet curtains, and then wanting to escape. The pantomime on show is Aladdin. In her bid to escape, my workhouse girl falls asleep, and what follows is a reality-slash-dream parallel to Aladdin's story. So that was Bago's story. Ottilie asked us to say a little bit about why we joined her course, the Graphic Novels Real Life Stories course. Um, for me, there were sort of three main reasons. One was spending my childhood drawing comics and cartoons and sometimes getting into trouble at school for uh, drawing caricatures of people there. <laughs> um, the second was I love drawing and I love writing, but individually, they don't, I wouldn't show them to anyone. <laughs> When I put them together, somehow that's very freeing and I enjoy that. And the third, which is sort of really personal reason, was that um, my dad died when I was 15 and I went overnight from being a complete bookworm, always reading, to just not being able to focus on stories or books at all. Um, and that went through my GCSEs and A-levels, which wasn't great timing, um, not being able to read books. But when I got to my degree, which um, I deliberately chose a polytechnic rather than a university, so I wouldn't have to do as much reading, um, the thing that saved me was finding the graphic novels section of the library at Leicester Poly. And so I worked my way through that, and that somehow took me back into books and reading. So that's why I'll, I'll always be grateful to graphic novels and I think there's something that they offer that is um, a different space and that people can access in a different way um, so with the Theatre Royal project I really quickly chose Marlena Dietrich as my character and I thought it was a really easy choice because I just thought she'd be so fun to draw she's got the glamour, the posturing <laughs> she played with gender norms before most people did that 
Um, there's so many fantastic black and white photos of her on the internet. Um, and during the tour, Jackie told us an amazing sort of legend story from the Theatre Royal, which is that when Marlena Dietrich arrived at the Theatre Royal, they had pulled out all the stops to make it amazing for her. And they'd cleaned her dressing room really, really well. And yet, just before the show, she asked for a scrubbing brush and scrubbed the whole thing down. Um, apparently, the stage manager was distraught by this and walked out. Um, and, and, and then there was this rumour that potentially perhaps she had OCD and she was scrubbing the, the dressing room to relax. Who knew? Um, I did some more research and I couldn't find any other kind of connections for her with OCD. But I did find um, some really interesting stories about her helping Jews to escape from Nazi Germany. And I thought that's another whole side of her that hadn't really come across. Um, so that played into my story a little bit. Um, as Ottilie said, one of the exercises, one of the rules was that we had to have at least one of the other characters in our stories to link them up. Um, and my favourite part of the um, whole programme, really, was we had this collaborative exercise where we all went round sort of with our characters, talking to every other character and working out what possible interactions might you have with this person. So the two that I felt Marlena would have really had some interaction with was obviously the cleaner, Tanya's cleaner, and um, Bago's runaway orphan. Um, because, you know, there was that theme of sort of helping people escape. So from that, the rest of my story kind of fell into place. Tanya Surya Bandara. So when uh, Charlotte was saying about my character, uh, I chose the cleaner because, um, um, because basically I just like, on Jackie's tour, when you walk through the theatres, I'm sure you all will do now and do Jackie's tour because it's really amazing. You, it, the theatre itself is almost like a character. It's got these sepia colours and with Victoriana and little nooks and crannies where you could, someone could be there and you wouldn't know they're there. So they'd be able to hear and see and know everything about everything. And I just like the idea of a cleaner being so um, unnoticed by all the stars and all the very important people that go, but still knowing... So she would know everything about everyone else and no one would, would, would even have known that she was there or noticed that she was there. And I liked... I, I sort of wanted to give her a bit of a backstory. So I made her psychic and uh, so she's got this sort of past as to how she became... ended up being a cleaner at the the uh, theatre royal and her, my character connects with Catherine's character Mrs. Mrs. Nychard and they have this sort of um, secret friendship and loyalty uh, my character has this loyalty to Mrs. Nychard because Mrs. Nychard does her a great service and, and then she's forever in her debt and um, the, the thing that I found really difficult I think I do find difficult to draw is background and because the Theatre Royale is such a beautiful um, building and atmospheric and it was a big part of the story I completely cheated and just took photos and stuck my characters on the photo (laughs) Um, but 
you know, I, I didn't. I wanted to do it justice, and I didn't think I would have would have done done the theatre justice without um, with, with just drawing. Um, so what we what we were we'd be talking about collaboration quite a lot, and that was the best bit. It was um, just a lot of humour, a lot a lot of getting to know each other, and also it does test your drawing skills when you're drawing. <laughs> A character that someone else has conceived, um, so it's good to make you sort of uh, more versatile. And um, somehow we felt that it all sort of tied the stories, managed to kind of tie themselves together without too much um, restriction um, on on what we wanted to do with our characters. We still managed to intertwine them with each other. So that was that was really good fun. And the biggest. Contrib- contributor, the uh, inspiration of it was Jackie, Jackie, um, Jackie's lovely spooky historical tour, which it was so atmospheric and it just uh, made us uh, very inspired about the Victoriana of it. Um, and I had never realised that historical novels, historical graphic novels even existed, never, never, let alone um, do one, but um, now having gone back and, and looked at a few graphic novels that are historical, I've discovered uh, there is a plethora of amazing novels. Um, Berlin by Jason Lutz, which I'm sure everyone else has heard of, um, which is amazing. And as, as Otley was saying, my personal favourite is... <laughs> the, the star of our novel just there. Um, is Dull, uh, Dull Margaret. It is a new one by Jim Broadbent and uh, a cartoonist called Dix. And it is a, a, a fi- Dull Margaret is a fictional car- character who was first drawn by uh, uh, Bruegel the Elder in the 16th century to painting of a fierce peasant woman uh, with her defending her meagre possessions against in, in a war, sort of hellish war scene. And the the theory behind it is that, you know, attachment to to material goods and avariciousness. Anyway, it's a very interesting novel. Um, so that's that uh, historical novel. But really, there are many, many others. And as a child, the closest I got to a historic novel was Asterix the Gaul, which is amazing and colourful and funny and really inspired my love of graphic novels. And obviously, the... What I really love about graphic novels is how the artwork and the, you know, with a very sort of brief brushstrokes or whatever, can create such, convey such emotion and feeling, and uh, it's very accessible and immediate. Um, and I personally wanted to start doing one for a, for a friend of mine and uh, her children, um, so which is why I joined Otley's course, which was amazing. Um, and as I say it's such a lovely fun project we keep coming back to it and it's created um, good friendships as well and uh, it's just been a lovely happy experience Judith Biddleston Um, so um, why did I come to Ottilie's classes Um, so I spent a career doing you know as a nurse in in the health service and um, working as a nurse and teaching nursing practice and then we moved to Brighton and um, I started a course as 
uh, Elle said, I started a course at Jew Street at New Writing South on memoir, and my interest was uh, medical memoir at that time. And one of our Saturday workshops, Nicholas Streeton came of um, Ladies Do Comics and spent the day with us, and I had no idea what a graphic novel was. She brought her graphic novel um, to inspire us, um, Billy, Me and You, which was her story about her son. And I had, I mean, graphic books for me, graphic novels for me, were what my parents took off my younger brother when he was supposed to be studying and put them in the bin because they were comics. So I didn't know what this thing was. It was a completely different, you know, it was a, it was a different genre. Um, anyway, that inspired me to look at how to, to sort of draw a history, brand new, no idea of how to draw. When I drew at school, uh, it was really just proved every single time that I had no kind of uh, DNA for creativity. And, um, and then I um, looked up how to do graphic novels in Brighton, and Ottilie's course came up at Phoenix, which is why I started. And one of the... It was very early on when I started that we did the um, collaboration, and we went to the Theatre Royal for the tour, which was really, as everybody says, it was inspiring. And um, I uh, was so inspired by the actual history of the theatre that I looked around at... uh, who was the first person that ever tread the, was you know, sort of treading the boards at the Theatre Royal? And the first ever production at the theatre, which was commissioned and built, funded by the Prince Regent, you know, later George IV in Brighton, you know, the pavilion. Um, he, he kind of built the whole thing. Um, the first production was in 1807, and it was Hamlet. And... The person who was the first female on the boards was Theresa Marie Theresa de Combe, who was an Austrian, born in 1887, and she, her family came penniless to London, and they were a family of actors. Her mum and dad were actors, the whole family were on the stage. She was six years old and was on the stage, which was a very different you know, idea of acting in those days. And she, in 1806, met in London the manager of the Drury Lane Theatre of the Kemble acting dynasty, Charles Kemble, and they got married. And he was Hamlet and she was Ophelia on the very first ever production in the Theatre Royal. And that really inspired me. I love the idea of, you know, 200 years ago kind of thing. And um, what happened in the story? What was she doing? And so... Um, it was right at the beginning of the hashtag me too thing what was big and the, I read in the history of the Theatre Royal that the, um, that the Prince Regent built a tunnel from the pavilion to the theatre, you know whether or not this is true but this was a history um, where he would uh, kind of make his way down the tunnel or his men would make their way down the tunnel and they would borrow the actresses for him and Teresa, of course, was on the stage, and I thought, what would happen if she was confronted with this sort of um, abduction? And that's my story, which I loved. I loved the whole visit to the theatre. Um, I loved the collaboration in the classroom, as everybody said, the, the friendship that came out of it, the actual inspiration of the whole thing was fantastic. And, um, and so I wrote about uh, Teresa... Uh, being abducted, taken into the tunnel. And then I needed a reason. I needed a reason for uh, Teresa's escape during that tussle in the tunnel. And so, of course, the famous the, the person who is actually in the front row here, who is the, I think, inspiration for the little orphan, um, uh, is the person who gains from Teresa's escape. 
um, the ring that falls off the, the ring of the uh, Prince Regent during the tussle in the tunnel um, has lain in the tunnel for until Victorian times and the orphan in her escape runs into the tunnel, is helped by the ghost of Teresa de Camp and uh, escapes to freedom and she's seen at the end of mine, are you on the last one yet? The chief runs and escapes and um, into freedom with some funding. And uh, so a historic novel that I've read that is something like the Theatre Royal actually is called An English Castle and it's about Scotney Castle in Kent and it's a kind of series of stories that have been bolted together about a castle uh, based on historic reality um, with some imagination. And it's the same sort of thing. It's really worth reading. It's a good resource, a school's resource, but it's also a great story with some great pictures. So um, these, these images, this image on, on the screen at the moment is of the character called Lillian who ran the Gulp Bar. And this, these were drawn by Nigel, who couldn't make it today, but... Nigel's character, and perhaps Nigel like his character, was slightly controversial. Um, Lydia, uh, L- Lydia Lillian, who ran the Gulp Bar in Nigel's story, ends up trying to um, assass- kill off uh, Charlotte's character and various other people just, uh, I don't know, for fun, I think. And uh, he describes as a bit of a steerpipe character. And Nigel uh, found the collaboration, uh, and I quote, like designing a graphic novel by committee. So he was just, <laughs> I think he enjoyed it in the end, but it was uh, a little bit like, uh, 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 not, not his best fun thing to do. <laughs> so, but yeah, but his character is great and, and very funny. And these, the images now on screen are by Kula. So, yes, um, Kula, who is here today as well, um, uh, went to the theatre and saw Simon Callow. Callow, not Cowell. <laughs> Everybody was. Oh, I've got to see Simon Cowell in the theatre, right? No. And um, so Simon Callow was did a one-man show. I don't know whether anybody remembers it, who's from Brighton. And um, Kula was kind of taken by the fact that he turned up on the stage at one point with two glasses of red wine, one in each hand, and, sh- and he hadn't been to the bar, so how did he get these um, two glasses of red wine? And so after the Theatre Royal tour, um, Kula was inspired to write about Simon Callow's story within the Theatre Royal when he did his performance within the Theatre Royal. And, and um, Kula being full of imagination and... Um, Ability to draw incorporated most of the other characters within the collaboration, and she wrote about the uh, fact that there was that little bar, the little hole in the wall bar where actors kind of, you know, as they walked onto the stage, would get a drink and another drink and another drink. <laughs> Obviously, wouldn't work today, would it? But uh, Kula was inspired by that. Um, she says that she, um, uh, and so her story, of course, uh, you can read in the book, and um, uh, she. Uh, loved, like we all did, the thing about sitting down and talking together about our characters and then incorporating them within our own stories. That's cooler. Now we, now we want. Um, now Nick is going to tell us a bit about his project, which was he worked on. He moved. He recently moved to a houseboat and has been telling the story of his of his trip that moved to the houseboat and its history. So. Nick Hannon. Uh, 18 months ago, fell in love with his houseboat in Shoreham, 
and ended up buying it. It was a crazy thing to do. It was cold, it leaked, the roof blew off, and it smelled at high tide. And beneath the superstructure is a luxurious Victorian steam yacht built in 1887 that took rich people up and down the Thames. The boat was originally named Pansy, but its name was changed to Asteroid a few years later. The boat came with a list of every owner from its launch right up to the 1980s, and it was a story begging to be told in comic format. I researched all the owners and found a surprising amount about the early ones, while it was still a luxurious boat before it was turned into a houseboat. Who's telling the story, she asked. So I went back to the drawing board and made the boat's residents tell the story. So the designer and first owner, Sir Gilbert Clayton East, tells us the specifications of the boat, of his design, and the next owner, Baron de Barreto, tells us he's changed the name and doesn't believe that the idea of changing name is bad luck. Thankfully, for dramatic purposes, next one. Thankfully, for dramatic purposes, the next owner, Alfred Dodman, fits a new boiler, takes the boat to sea, and it promptly breaks down. I found an account of the successful rescue on the high seas in the records of the Sheringham Norfolk lifeboat on Wikipedia. I've done a, a lot of research on this, probably as much as uh, drawing, actually. The rest of the story is mainly a work in progress. I have a letter from uh, the owner in the 1920s who is listing all the luxuries that are on board to potential buyers. I've made him a bit sporty in a 20s post-war, post-Great War look, a bit like Edward VIII, maybe. And he's listing all the things on board. There'll be a speech bubble in here. Things like silk lampshades, Chesterfield, piano, central heating... It's hard to believe that's our bedroom now, but that's how it may have looked. Because I found that the boat was commandeered in 1943 until late 1944, so it may be a bit of conjecture, but uh, it was commandeered as troop accommodation. So I'm assuming the troops on board went to D-Day with the flotilla that left Nishoran. I can also draw some dramatic scenes in the background as the docks were bombed around this time. So I'm going to have one of the troops saying something like, Missed it, mate. Look out, we're coming for you. <laughs> Page has shown the conversion of Asteroid to a houseboat with the masts and bowsprit being sadly sawn off, and then another one of our eventual restoration are to follow. A favourite graphic novel of mine is Amina by Barbara Yellen. It's based around diaries and letters she found among her late grandmother's things. Trying hard not to do any spoilers, it follows an ambitious young German woman who comes to stay in pre-war England. She forms a relationship with a black university student from Oxford. She defends him vehemently when he's racially abused, but when forced to return to Germany, she begins to accept the benefits of fascism without reflection and starts to turn a blind eye to the treatment of the Jews. It's beautifully drawn work. And that's my, my work and my favourite book. <laughs> L. Whitcroft. The collaboration process just sounds absolutely really intricate and really complex. You're pointing people in the crowd, so there's, there's writers in the crowd, and you, you're, you know, you were, you were, so there are loads of people involved. Mm-hmm. Can you say a bit more about the collaborative process? How long did it take? What were the challenges? I think a lot of people here create comics, so, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it was a kind of an ongoing process, but there was definitely a very intense collaboration bit sort of around about the middle, and the classes are sort of two hours long, so we've all, it's always a bit of a mad dash to get 
enough done, but basically everybody drew their character and tried to draw what their character looked like and then put them in the middle of the table and then so they could see what they looked like and then they asked each other questions about their character and they talked about their character and they tried to work out ways in which they might have, you know, situations that might have happened between them. So did the ice cream seller sell an ice cream to Marlena or whatever? So they basically went around everyone. And I would say it probably took about, was that a couple of hours or was that an hour maybe? A bit, you know, yeah. Well, it was a bit, yeah. I don't know about any of what the rest of you think about the collaboration process. Mm. Of course, it's, um, it's a room full of imaginations, isn't it? And I think that's the point of it, you know, that every as soon as Ottilie gives us the task to sort of share these, you know, what we've created and how we would collaborate and include other people's characters, everybody has a different take on it. So it's a fascinating process to sort of to be part of that, isn't it? It's a really fascinating process because you don't all think the same way. You know, everybody has a different idea about who that person is, why they're doing what they're doing, how is it going to develop, you know? And so really having no rules and no boundaries is just a fascinating process. You know, it was... Uh, it gave us free reign to just just give it all, you know, and sort of... And I think you get to know people very, very well in that situation. Yes, I should imagine it's a bit like sort of acting when you've got to share a space with other people. You know, you've got to be sympathetic to them yeah. and they're sympathetic to you. So it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it is like by doing it by committees. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it helps that we all actually like being with each other anyway and seeing mm-hmm. each other socially outside of, of the, uh, you know, so, mm-hmm. so that it's, you have extra time and it's just an excuse to be isn't it? <laughs> but you have to build a team. You have yeah. to build yeah. a team. And I think it has yeah. to feel safe. It has to feel like yes. a really secure space for people to be feel free to experiment and try and express what is in their imagination and not be embarrassed about it. And then other people's responses feed what you're doing. So if you're just doing something on your own at home, it's so easy to say, oh, that's rubbish, I'll just put that away and never show anyone. But when yeah. you're in a room full of people and people go, I love the way that you've done this, or this mm, is interesting, can you say more about that? Then it, the creative process becomes easier. Yeah. Just the juices flowing. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, so did you become friends through going to Ottilis? Well, is that what you meant? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Through the classes, yeah. Yeah, yeah at Phoenix. Yeah. It does feel like a club sometimes. It does, doesn't it? Obviously, it's like doing what the ladies do. Yeah. Yeah. We've started doing a monthly meeting as well outside, an evening meeting as well. So We've started doing a monthly evening meeting as well when we get together as well with our mm-hmm. projects. It's like a free club, really, you know, yeah. anybody that's interested in drawing. Yeah. But we do do projects with Ottilie that, uh, you know, are a single, you know, you do your thing and present it. Um, so this was, you know, this was something different. This was, this collaboration was something different and it has definitely gelled, you know, our, our minds flow together now, definitely. If there's no questions in the crowd, I have another one. So I'm absolutely fascinated um, by the level of immersion that went into your project. So you went to the Theatre Royal... You had this amazing tour, um, and then you, you really got, you had loads of practice getting into character. I don't think would have had the same response if I went to the council office. Right. <laughs> right. Somehow. Yeah. It's a totally absorbing place, you yeah. know, the theatre, right, when there's nobody in it. 
because it's supposed to have people in it, isn't it? And when you go and there's no one there, it's a very different place. You know, of course, it's listed and they've kept all of the, 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 the um, parts of the theatre, you know, the fittings and fixtures and things from the 1800s, you know, so it's, you're stepping back in time even if you don't want to. And you do feel that there's this thing, and I'm not the spooky person, at, you know, I'm not a ghosty person. You know, yes, Kula had them all, I mean, um, uh, Tanya had them all going on, but... It's, I, I think it was just the feeling of that there's been so many stories, yeah. real stories in the plays. Yeah. It, as soon as Jackie started sort of telling us a bit about it, we started doing a bit of internet research. You're like, whoa, okay, I want to tell this story. Yeah. And, you know, people really knew which story they wanted to tell just from finding out a bit about stuff that actually happened there. It's just like begging to be told. Absolutely, Marlena. It's really interesting. <laughs> Do you know what was really, really weird was that I said to my sister, oh, we've been doing this collaboration. She lives up in the northeast in Newcastle, where I'm from. And she said, what did you say our name was that you've picked up? And I said, Teresa de Comp. She was an actress, you know, and she married Charles Campbell. And she said, oh, like Adelaide de Comp. And I said, who's Adelaide? And she said, you know who Adelaide de Comp is? Listen to this. She said, you played her part in a play, and Adelaide is Teresa's sister. And I played Adelaide in the school play. And I was very young and I didn't know anything about it. And it was a history of Newcastle in a potted thingy. And I was Adelaide, but it was Adelaide's married name. But of course, all the, everybody was told about her family history and she was a decomp from Austria. Isn't that really, really strange? It is strange because I've got this record of so many people who lived there. And you sort of, someone's collecting them over the years and it says things like, died so-and-so, so-and-so, you know, someone's died in this room and all that. So there is a sort of presence about it. But actually the scariest thing that's happened to me there is when it was all rocking a bit in the storm. There was a crab on the boat and I saw it out the corner of my eye and I thought it was a bloody trench. And I was like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> so that's the, that's the most... Um, <laughs> spooky, spooky moment. To run to the crab. Yeah. If you'd like to order a copy of the Brighton Theatre Royal Comic Book Anthology created by Ottilie Hainsworth, Charlotte Semlian, Tanya Surya Bandara, Judith Biddleston and many others, please go to Ottilie's Instagram page and get in touch via the message function. Ottilie is also selling copies of her graphic novel Waiting for Gina with a sketch inside for $9.99. And you can find Ottilie's Instagram page by going to instagram.com stroke ottilie.hainsworth. That's O-T-T-I-L-I-E dot H-A-I-N-S-W-O-R-T-H. If you'd like to find more info about Nick Cannon and his ongoing progress of creating a graphic novel about his houseboat, please go to nickcannon.wordpress.com. That's N-I-C-K-C-A-N-N-A-N.wordpress.com. And Nick, Judith, Tanya and Ottilie have also collaborated on another comic book anthology, which you can find online at grimyheights.com. That's G-R-I-M-Y-H-E-I-G-H-T-S dot com. Like the Theatre Royal comic, Grimy Heights is an anthology looking at the inhabitants, present and past, of a peculiar location. 
in this case a mysterious tenement and mansion, with the website presenting the selection of chapters featuring each artist and each artist's creation as doorbells that you can press to let yourself into each of the apartments. Grimy Heights is a terrific project, and I look forward to talking to some of the creators of this project later in the year. As mentioned earlier, two of today's Q&As were recorded at Graphic Brighton, the annual festival of cartoonists and academics which takes place at the University of Brighton and other venues around the city. For more info about Graphic Brighton, please go to their blog, graphicbrighton.wordpress.com, and hopefully there'll be a couple of Graphic Brighton events taking place later this year. Panel Borders was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch, and is a Panel Borders production. You can find all previous episodes on our blog, www.panelborders.wordpress.com, and we'll be back on the first Wednesday in February. Thanks for listening. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.